Hello again, everyone. It'd be great if you have your Bibles open at home. If you have your Bibles open at home, you can run off and get one, right? Here, you can't quite do that, can you? So please try and bring them. Sorry, my, my, no, my notes are upside down. That's going to be, that'd be an interesting time, wouldn't it? Do you want to give it a go? No, I don't. <laughs> please, yeah, keep 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 open. And also, if you're at home, I'm going to link straight into communion. And if you're here, those little things can be fiddly. We have to use these little things. Yeah, I know. Hey. And so if you want to throughout the sermon, if ever, you know, you're bit, you give it a go. Try and open it up so at the end you're ready to be able to partake in the Lord's Supper at the end of our service. In fact, in the kids' church today, they're going to be talking about what it means to do communion, what it means to share in the Lord's Supper as well. So... It's great that we get to do this memorial meal together at the end. How about I pray? And let's get stuck into what God has to say to us today. Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for all that has just been prayed by Phil. We do long to keep you central. We do long to have Christ and his cross as the very center of what it is that we do believe and think and what grounds our very existence. We ask, Lord, that as we take a look at what Paul had to say to the Corinthians, that your holy scriptures might speak to us, that they might inspire us, and that your Holy Spirit might come and enable us to be those people that you are calling us to be, to be those people that you are making us to be, to become those people that you've always longed for us to be, that we might proclaim your glorious gospel. And we pray all of this in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus tells a story, and you probably know this story. It's in Matthew chapter 7. He tells this sort of story, or you could call it a parable, about two houses and two builders, one who was wise and the other who was foolish. You see, the wise builder, he says, gets his stuff together and he goes and seeks to build a house, and he builds his house on a rock, on a solid foundation, and he builds this thing, and then the rains come, And the streams rise, the wind blows and beats, no wolf and piggies, but the wind is blowing and beating and it does not fall because it has sure and firm foundations. That's the wise builder. And then comes the foolish builder, who it seems almost out of haste you could pick up, wants to just get this thing done, wants to rely on his own ideas and strength and so he builds his house upon the sand And just like the house that was on the rock, the rain comes, the streams rise, the wind beats and blows against this thing and it falls down with a crash because it was built on foolish foundations. Foundations are important, aren't they? And I think through this series, what I had anticipated has been a little bit different as to how it is that God has chosen to speak to us. And he's been reminding us of the need for us to have firm foundations Where we put our trust matters, doesn't it? It ends up having a result. It impacts the end result. Where we build our lives, where we put our hope, it really does matter, doesn't it? Whether it's going to stand or whether it's going to be washed away and come crashing down. The results matter. And the difference here, again, was between wisdom and foolishness. Exactly what Paul's been teasing out exactly what it is that we need to keep considering. Are we living wise or are we living like fools? Because the way to wisdom is very different to what we often perceive it to be. Method matters. How we build, 
and on what we build matters. Whether you're building on the rock or sand, whether you're going to be saved or you're going to perish, as Paul has unpacked recently, whether you will have solid foundations or you'll have shifting sand that means that you will crash and fall. Wisdom, foolishness, it's been the divide that we've been looking at throughout this last little bit of Corinthians, right? And so if you've been with us the last few weeks, just to recap, we saw at the beginning of chapter one, Paul addresses the church and he has this intro, which I suggested was like a neon sign that lights up the rest of the book, that highlights who they are and how it is that they are meant to be as God's people in Corinth, in Christ, in community. And then they are to be this this united front. But there was an issue there, right? Something that lay beneath. Spiritual pride was creating cracks. The foundations of what it is that they believed in was forming division and the house was starting to come crashing down. And so he comes with this argument about, well, what actually should be at the foundation? And who really are you? Firstly, he talks about the cross of Christ that is foolishness to the world, but power and salvation for those who believe. And then he came to the community, talking about the nothings and the nobodies of the church and how it is you've been made somebodies because God chose you. And now he comes to his own experience. In this next little bit, verses 1 to 5, we hear Paul speak about his experience and says, okay, we've looked at the cross, we've looked at you. Now, how did I come to you? What was my experience and your experience of me in the way that I came to you producing this message so that there is even a church at all? Did you see that in verse 1? And as it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, he makes it personal. And you could actually link all the way back to verse 17 as he restarts this. Because in verse 17, he said, I did not, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so, as it was with me, when I came preaching, this is how I did it. And he reminds them of the message And then he'll speak about his method, and at the end, we'll look at the fact that there are results, and important results, because of those two things. So let's begin with the message. As I said before, you can see that it actually links from verse 17. If you have your Bible open, it helps, doesn't it? Because you can flickety-flick. And so in verse 17, you see, for for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's going to be important. Because Paul says, when I came, how did I come? Verse 3, verse 1, sorry. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed, as I preached to you the testimony about God. How did he come? Well, not with a big parade, right? How we arrive at things communicate something. I was thinking about this just this week. I was meeting with uh, the, the deputy principal of Inabara, and we were having a chat, and he was talking about how because they've shifted, you know how December 1, it was meant to all be open up again? They've shifted it to the 15th of December now. That means the year 10 formal may not happen. Do you remember your year 10 formal? I remember my year 10 formal. It wasn't that long ago. It was a fair way ago, all right? And I showed up in this car that had flames on the side. And yeah, it was awesome. The, the, I had no idea that I was going to do this, but a girl at school said, hey, can you take me to the formal? My uncle owns this car place thing. And so I got to go on this crazy... It was bested by every second person, though, because apparently arriving at your year 10 formal, you need to come in this car. One fella at our year 12 formal had a helicopter. Showed up in a helicopter. 
the parade, the spectacle of the arrival to try and signal that this is a big moment and you might be big stuff. We think about that when somebody shows up to the red carpet or show, that's a bit like what happened when the sophists or the, the rhetorical philosophizers came rolling into Corinth. The Greco-Roman world at the time would have these people who would tour around, and I've mentioned this previously, they would be the influencers, the movers and shakers. They came powerfully to display their wisdom, their eloquence, and they manipulated people, all because they got a bit of a a kick out of it or a, a paycheck out of it, or because they believed maybe in the idea that they had, but they would sell it at all costs to promote self, to please the crowd, to influence and to educate along the way. But to do that, you got to keep your brand alive, right? you got to keep marketing up. Marketing would be key in a moment like that. And so how you arrive is important. I instantly think, when I think about this, of Aladdin. Now, I'd imagine most of you have seen Aladdin. If you haven't, check it out. Don't watch the recent remake. Go back and watch the original Disney classic. It's fantastic. For those who don't know who Aladdin is, I've got him up on the screen. So that's Aladdin. And who's that? Anybody know who that is on the other side? Prince Ali Ababa. When Aladdin arrives, well, Prince Ali arrives, what happens? It's this huge spectacle. The genie ensures that he can come with a parade like nothing else. And we'll come back to that. Because the sophists of the day, the rhetoric the way that they used to communicate had that sort of feel to it. And they would then educate and influence. And we need to keep remembering, I just wanted to remind us today that we experience that today, which will shift and shape what I'm going to say later. We are influenced by it. We feel the need to potentially perform as a church, as individuals, to add things to, to parade the Christ crucified message. Because ain't nobody going to be convinced by a street rat Aladdin or a dude hanging on a cross with a riff-raff crew that he follows, that follows him. Particularly when we look at advertising today, politics and the way that they play and manipulate. TV presenters, comedians, musicians, actors, our Instagram influencers, our social media, they have found a power in communication to promote self, to please the crowd, to build the brand, to pitch and to sell. I mentioned a couple of weeks back the slogans that people use that then teach the narrative that's underneath that. Trying to display self-will, to glorify it, and it influences us, doesn't it, in the church? The form and the method then start to need to take a different sort of shape so that we believe the message will actually work. And then we start to think maybe we need to compromise a bit on that too. Paul wasn't buying in at all. We've got to listen to this. So I want to emphasize it again today, because he is so convicted by and committed to the message that it will impact even the way he goes about it. It will impact his method. It will impact his how. As he proclaimed the testimony of God, he wanted to do it the right way. And right there, what does he do? What is the message that he comes with? The testimony about God. The mystery, you could say. I think mystery is actually the better word. People have different ideas on this. But the mystery, the truth revealed about God that humans didn't find, but that God revealed to them through what? The message of the gospel, Christ crucified. He is so convicted by, he is so committed to this mystery. What has been revealed, what does he say in verse 2? I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Resolved, his commitment, 
He is firmly set on this court. He is determined. He's like, this is, this is all I'm going to know. The root word actually for resolved is uh, the word for judge. It is his judgment. It is his firm decision to know nothing. Nothing would compromise the central place that the cross has, that Jesus has, and Jesus crucified has in his message. You think about a windscreen. In Australia, what often happens to windscreens in summer if you're driving just a sort of evening? What happens? Bugs have their moment on your screen. That is all gone. There's no stickers covering this thing up. There is a clear view. The demystifier is most certainly working for Paul because he wants to make sure that there is nothing blocking any potential threat or anything distracting you and me from Christ crucified. Keep that central because there is a big temptation to change that because of what it means. Go back and listen to a couple of weeks back if you want to understand that some more. There is a huge temptation. Right here again is the slogan of the church that we must keep central, which is why we share this meal so often. Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. That Jew from the backwater town of whatever, he is the King and him crucified. The one who hung on a filthy, cursed Roman cross in the dump outside of town. He is the King of the entire world. And he asks for you to then build your entire life upon his words, the rock, not on the sand of everything else. Now, at this point, I do want to ask, is Paul just saying only, and we touched on this a little bit, you have to just be basically an idiot and focus in on one thing. Don't ever think and just always say, Jesus, cross, no. He's going to show brilliantly how you don't have to do that. But he never wanted the brilliance of intellect, the dazzle and distraction of it, the brightly shone lights to blind people from actually the truth, from the central and governing message that defines the entire world, right? The truth, the rock, that Jesus Christ was crucified. And so we want to make sure that we have that as the central thing that we do today, which is why we, in a moment, share in this meal, to strip it all back And remember, it's about Jesus' body and his blood shed upon the tree that all of truth comes to be defined through. And he is so convicted by and committed to the message that it will impact how he does it, the method. Because what was his method? Have a look back again, because he's already started to tease it out. It's not as simple as just working through today. Verse 1, what did he say? I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. Similar to what he said back in chapter 1, verse 17, right? Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He didn't want human pride to replace the actual magnificence of the cross. And then he goes on, verse 3 and 4, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Amen, how good is that? He didn't come, he says, promoting self. He didn't come pleasing God people. Paul doesn't arrive with the pomp and the applause of the genie, let's say. Prince Ali. Who was Prince Ali really? Oh, no, I've forgotten it. Hey, um, Chris, this is my moment. So, see that on top of my bag, that piece of paper? Can you come up and bring a mic because I'll get you to sing it instead. <laughs> no, sorry, mate. You not staying? <laughs> How did he show up? Do you remember it? I love this moment in, in, in Aladdin. So Aladdin was a street rat, had nothing. And he'd actually already met Jasmine. But to try and convince Jasmine's the 
the princess. And to try and convince everybody that he was a prince worthy of marrying a princess, he comes into town, he asks the genie to grant him his first wish of making him a prince. And a prince does he make him, right? And it starts with, make way, anybody want to join in? For Prince Ali, make way for Prince Ali. And he goes, hey, you, uh, hey, hey, clear the way in the old bazaar. Hey, you, let us through. It's a bright new star. Oh, come be the first on your block to meet his eye. Make way, here he comes. Ring bells, bang the drums. Are you going to love this guy? Prince Ali, oh, fabulous he Ali Ababwa, genuine flex, show some respect down on one knee. Try your best to stay calm. Brush up your Sunday salam. <laughs> the, then come and meet his specular. That's it. I can, it's literally written right here, but <laughs> Louise, you should have done this. <laughs> Prince Ali, mighty is he, Ali Ababwa. And it goes on. Strong as 10, mighty big men. He's, have you seen his, what else? What other stuff is in there? He's got 90, 95 white Persian monkeys. He's got the monkeys. Let's see the monkeys. Like it's, you know it. Many of you know it, right? And it's incredible. The spectacle, the flair. I'm convinced. Here he is. Marry that guy. I want to. Like it's, it's incredible, right? Paul, he doesn't come saying, I am Apostle Paul Ababwa, does he? Because you scrape below the surface of Prince Ali, it's just Aladdin. He's all right. Scrape below the surface of all of the foolish, the foolishness of wisdom, philosophy, and eloquence, and most of it comes back to human ideals that we've been seeing will perish. There's a street rat under there. And Paul didn't want them to be distracted by that. Paul didn't want them to start saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, right? So he didn't come showing eloquence and wisdom. Instead, verse 3, he said, I came in weakness, in fear and trembling. Now, the weakness stuff may be a physical thing. You see him talk about it in Galatians 4, for example, about having a physical ailment. 2 Corinthians, the next letter he writes to this crew, he talks about a thorn in his flesh, which many think is a physical thing that he was sick or he had some sort of thing going on with him that made him weaker, and particularly weaker in the eyes of the world. But also fear and trembling. Here is Paul. He's actually left his crew and he's alone walking up to this wild city. What was going to confront him was full on. This was a, a city that wanted this pomp, wanted this prowess, wanted a genie. But he comes not relying on himself. What's Paul's point? He wanted to proclaim a gospel that didn't depend on him, on his self-confidence, on his personal power, on his authority. Ultimately, Paul can say, I give glory in weakness because of what it does. It shows that God is strong. It gives evidence that God's power is at work. Verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with what? A demonstration of the Spirit's power. His proclamation. And there's a public sense to this, but don't think that this was what was happening. He would have been doing this in homes. Yes, sometimes out in the street. This includes you, not just a preacher like me. All of us in how we proclaim and share this wonderful message. But it's terrible marketing, isn't it? To preach Christ crucified. Brand Paul would not have been, mm, really? What about Apollos? What about those sophists? And Paul could have done it. He could have found a way. And it's appealing, isn't it? It's so appealing to try and get critical mass into a place to build off 
the brand of your Sunday service, your morning tea even, the services that you offer to people so that they can come and consume of that. It's not the bells and smells anymore, but all of the bells and whistles that we feel like we need as a church to deliver to the public so that, they'll just, so that we, we then look so desperate just to get the people into this building that we're seeking to please them every single time. We appeal to their felt needs and their surface-level desires and wants and forget that what do they need most desperately? Christ crucified in their life. There is a difference between ministry and manipulation, isn't there? There is a contrast. Between. Ministry is about us being servants of the Word, of Christ crucified, being His chosen people. But there can grow this sense of needing to add some people power to that because I don't know if the message really is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. I've seen some other churches do it a bit diff. They seem to be doing all right. And so we rely on systems and structures, purposes and planning. And they're all good things. Please don't think I'm saying they're not good things. But when they are what we rely upon, when they are what we think is what promotes the cause of God, well, underneath that, we're asking the question, does the gospel really work? He came not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Demonstration, proof. Now, is there something wrong with being persuasive at all by what Paul's saying here? No. And if there was, Paul would be contradicting himself big time. You just go back in Acts, he's just come from Thessalonica, well, Athens, sorry. But before that, in Thessalonica, he stood there persuading and arguing with them. In Athens, he debated with some of the most brilliant minds through their poetry. It's beautiful. Before that, he's in Jewish synagogues, showing them from their word, look, Jesus is the king. He contextualized. He used his mind. Paul was a brilliant man. He is about persuasion, about taking every captive, every thought captive. Jesus even says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, heart, meaning the very center of your being. Persuasion here that he's talking about is trying to convince people of something when there's no real evidence, when maybe you're lacking a bit of evidence, when you're saying, I'm a prince, when you're really a street rat. We often feel the need to do that, right? Whereas what he says is, we don't need that. We have the demonstration of the power of God through the Holy Spirit. We've got proof. We have all the evidence we need. And so Paul's like, my speech, my preaching, my proclamation were not with enticing and clever words, but with transparent proof. Look, the proof of the truth, the rock on which you are building your lives on. Paul is saying to them, brothers and sisters, this was my experience. Well, this was our experience, right? And so let the truth speak for itself, please. Look at the proof. The results really do matter. And you are part of those results, he's saying to them. Let the Holy Spirit do his work because he's doing it. Now, in our context, just like in Paul's, this may make us look like fools. To proclaim this message and then say, and God's going to actually really be the one that powerfully works in people's lives. But there are bigger risks than looking foolish today, aren't there? When the house that is built on sand, what will happen to it? It will come down, crash. And what, what Jesus is actually talking about in Matthew 7 is Judgment Day. The day where we'll have a look, okay? Who cares if there are thousands of beaches filled with thousands of houses? Let's say the churches are the beaches, but they're all built on that sand. And when the tide comes in, it's just going to wash away. We don't want that, do we? 
I have to be. We have to be willing to look like fools proclaiming this message because method matters. Method may just impact the message and the results. And there is a difference between genuine persuasion, where we're trying to genuinely say, hey, come see who Jesus really is, and manipulation, where we don't really care that much about that part. And the purpose and the end results are the key. Like proper gospel proclamation isn't measured by the applause of the audience and even the world outside of the church. People power, that's all about people. Proper gospel proclamation is measured by the activity of God in a place, right? Where God's power gets to be displayed. It can't be about self-promotion. It can't be about pleasing the crowd. That stuff has to melt. And so, Menai Bats, are we a place that does ministry or we, we, we are tempted by the manipulation? Like, let's really search. What are we built on here? What are we building people on here? We must be crucified to die to the ways of manipulation. First, yes, sitting here in this because of the attention that the pulpit gets, but then all of us as proclaimers, every time we get opportunity to speak the gospel to another, to share what we're really on about in our lives, Paul was so convinced, so resolved, right? And so let me get direct. Let's start with this. It's not really a pulpit anymore, is it? It's a table. Let's have a look at the pulpit and the people. This pulpit or wherever we preach from, whatever it looks like, when it comes to being our sort of shared moment of looking at God's Word together. This cannot be about self-promotion or people-pleasing, can it? And this is all of our responsibility. This doesn't just come back to me. What do you want, want, right, from a sermon each week? Be real with yourself. What do I want when I get up here and then I finish? We have to search ourselves my attitude, and what is my attitude as, as the main preacher here or anybody else that gets up here to preach? We have to be held accountable. Please hold me and whoever is in this position accountable. We are just as weak, we are just as fear and trembling or should be as any other person. Nothing special about the person standing behind this. It's the power of God's word that is, that is special. But then what is your attitude? Please check your desires when you come in through that door, as you approach this place, what am I hoping to receive today? What will make me walk out of here knowing that God has done his work in my life? And so what is our resolve, men I baps? What is all of this about if it isn't Christ and him crucified? If it isn't about that, it is empty, Paul says. The room can be full, but will be built on sand our proclamation, which extends beyond this pulpit, so every time you get to share this message, our approach, our attitude, our resolve, please can it be to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen? Amen. This is not an anti-intellectual or anti-hard work message. There is a big difference between contextualization so that the audience can understand and working hard to try and show them the glory and the majesty of who Jesus is and compromise, Right? so that the audience becomes the authority. When you compromise, that's ultimately what you're doing. You're letting them determine how it is that you believe you need to either be or share the message. There's a big difference between presenting the truth and dressing it up like a prince. We have our prince. We have our king, and he hung crucified on a bloodied Roman cross to save the world from their sins. Look again. What's the demonstration? A demonstration of the Spirit's power. What's this that he's talking about? A demonstration, there is proof that that message actually works. You are that proof. 
Paul's saying, you, you, the church that has been convicted and converted, you're the proof, the agency and the activity of the Holy Spirit, bringing about faith, turning people to God and transforming their lives. That's what then is built on the rock. People's lives built on truth, hearing the word and putting into practice. That's the demonstration of God's power through the Holy Spirit. Sanctification. And is this talking about miraculous spiritual things? At this point, yes and no. It would be strange for Paul to talk about signs and miraculous, the spectacular, right? Like fireworks and fun and all of that stuff in this moment. He seems more to be focusing on the sign and the miracle of sanctification. The refining fire. It's less popular, but actually it proves the power of the Spirit. It can't be faked. You build a house on dodgy foundations... The day that difficult things come and come through, it's going to be rocked. And so let me, I want to do this whenever I preach a fairly firm line. Be encouraged. I see the power of God's Holy Spirit at work in you. The demonstration of his power here, as through tough times and good times, we continue to seek to grow and to love. But why don't you look for it in one another? Why don't we start to to look for the whole life life renovations that are happening in each individual and encourage each other. See people becoming more and more like Christ. Tell the stories, celebrate, share the the good times and the hard times. Point to that wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in each person because it might be time for us to have a building inspection, to check our foundations. I've felt that way as I've looked through 1 Corinthians. It strips you bare, doesn't it? What is actually right there at the very core? Because What is there will matter for the results at the end, right? What happens in verse 5? The results. So that your faith, he says, the results might be that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the only solid foundation to build a life on in this world. That's what Paul's been saying. It must be built on the rock. Don't get manipulated. A faith based on people power, whatever that looks like, on self-promotion or simply pleasing the crowd, it will crumble. It will be like that beach filled with houses when the tide comes in and just washes them away. And so for those of you in this room or online who don't know Jesus, please put your trust in him. In a moment, you can actively demonstrate that you're doing that by taking or sharing in communion. But now, do it, please. He is the only solid foundation. The Holy Spirit will will do this for you. He'll, He'll right the wrongs. He could be at work right now prompting you. And there is proof in this room and I hope in your life. His death and his resurrection, Jesus and him crucified, it is the power of God. He died for our sins, for sinners like you and me. He took our guilt and our shame, our rebellion, our self-centered confidence, and even our doubting despair. He took all of that, our deceit. He paid for it all, atoning for, cancelling the debt that we owed in his body, by his blood, on the tree, on that cursed Roman cross. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And he wants to pour out his Holy Spirit to you, to powerfully transform you. The Spirit who is even now, I hope, producing that seed of faith that allows for you to be able to say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Saviour. And if you've said you've been a Christian forever and need to just commit again today to that, do it as we eat and drink in just a moment. Because our resolve here at Menai is that we want all of you to know that, right? Those who don't see it, we want you to see it. A clear windscreen. The church can't save you. I can't save you. Your friend can't save you. You can't save you. 
You who are perishing can only be saved through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So trust Him today. Which is why we here must be committed to this, right? For us who do know then, where is our resolve? Like really, what is our attitude and our approach? Let's minister with this message, not manipulation. Let's set our lives on the rock. It's glorious. Build our lives on a solid foundation. Be the very living proof of the power of God at work in our lives and the lives of those around us. And to do that, you know one of the greatest places we can turn, one of the best things we can do is sharing communion because it strips it all right back, doesn't it? If you have a Bible, can you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? It's very fitting that in this book, we read this in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you proclaim? Anybody that's got it there in front of them, what does it proclaim? You proclaim the Lord's resurrection. You proclaim the parade. You proclaim the kingdom to come. What do you proclaim? The Lord's death until he comes. Always front and center, right? Jesus Christ, the Lord, and him crucified. 